Today on episode number 167 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Ben Kahn and Maria Erb join us to talk about educational technology across the disciplines. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our personal productivity so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. I'm thrilled today to have Ben and Maria joining me from the University of Portland. And I had a chance to meet Maria at the Lilly Conference that was held out here in Orange County, California earlier this year. And also got to get connected with Ben. He listens to the show regularly. So it's just fun to be connected with both of them and learning from them and sharing in community. Ben is an instructional technologist and graduate student. He's based in Portland, Oregon. He specializes in training and consulting with faculty on educational technology, web 2.0 tools, the creation of digital instructional multimedia and digital literacy. As you'll no doubt hear in his stories, he really believes in strong relationships with faculty as the best way to support effective integration of technology into higher ed curricula. And in his spare time, he likes movies, reading and writing, travel, baseball, and hanging out with his wife and two dogs. Also on the show today is Maria. She's an instructional designer for also for the University of Portland, and she is the co-host of their University of Portland Tech Talk podcast. And I was so excited to be on their show. I'll be posting a link to that in the show notes if you want to go have a listen to that episode about what is digital pedagogy. And in addition to being the co-host of their podcast, her mission is to make learning ubiquitous and painless for everyone. And certainly in this episode, she does that for me. And I know she does it for so many of her faculty. Maria and Ben, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thanks, Bonnie. Glad to be here. I feel Thank you for having us. I feel so much like this is a little bit of I'll scratch your podcast, you scratch mine. <laughs> <laughs> I had a great time coming on the University of Portland Tech Talk podcast and getting to talk about digital pedagogy and had such a great conversation with the two of you. I thought, you got to come on my show and then let's talk some more. So thanks so much for being willing to spend some time sharing your stories. Sure. Definitely. We were starting to talk through the outline a little bit and some of the things you were going to share. And I started to turn into a little bit of a kid in a candy store. So I'm going to start talking right now and kick this thing off. (laughs) I want to start out, Ben, if you could share a little bit about some of the tools that your faculty are using. Then, Maria, I know you're going to talk a little bit more about sort of the instructional design piece of it and how your students are experiencing this. Let's start off with the experience that some of your professors have had with subreddit. First, maybe you should talk about what the heck Reddit yeah. is before you get to a subreddit. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Well, Reddit is basically a link sharing site where you can go and make different posts and share different content that you found online or create your own content. And so we have a professor here at UP who's a bit of a younger guy and He was actually just very involved on Reddit day to day anyway. 
Um, he's basically blamed it as the number one productivity killer in his life and decided, <laughs> you know, hey, I could probably work this into my teaching instead of just, you know, wasting much time on it. So basically what he did was he went and created a small kind of a subreddit. So that's basically a community within Reddit. And he's able to control that and have it be private and invite his students into it. And the reason that he wanted to set it up is to create sort of a community online that was for his class. And his goal, he said, was that he felt that he kept getting older and the students kept getting younger. And he was basically starting to lose touch and the references he brought into class weren't resonating as much as they had at one point. So he was able to have the students go there and then share things that were relevant both to them and to their classwork together. Um, and he found that to be just a very successful way to get students to engage critically with the course material, but in a way that made sense to them. I have not been up on Reddit very often. And there's a couple things that come to mind. One would just be to describe it. It sort of looks a little bit almost text-based and and very much old school discussion thread sort mm-hmm. of thing. Does that sound right? Yeah, yeah. that's that definitely does. right. And then the second mm-hmm. thing that comes up a lot in my head is I do associate it, and I can't explain why, but I associate a lot with some online bullying and just kind of the worst of commenting on the internet, but that may not be an accurate perception. And I had no idea even that you could create your own community that was private within it. So this is already very insightful for me. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just kind of, it's one of those sites that's just sort of out there on the internet. And so it does have a reputation as being a little bit more of a Wild West kind of place where some not so appropriate things or some not so desirable things might take place. And that's why it was so important for him to be able to kind of create that sub community that was a little bit more walled off in terms of, you know, no, he was able to moderate the students posts before they went live. But at the same time, he was able to kind of integrate his curriculum with the broader world, which I think was important to him. Right. And it's a tool that he picked specifically because a lot of times, you know, when you have an LMS at your institution, it doesn't really meet all your needs. I mean, it does a lot of things really well, but in his case, he wanted to build this community that lasted beyond the life of the class. And so that his students who went through the class could then still be in that community and participate and kind of grow along with the newer students that they may never meet face to face, but still be a part of this community. So Reddit allowed him to do that. I really appreciate that you mentioned that because so much of the ethical criticism around the LMS is that it's really built around sort of the selfish things that an institution needs. We've got to have grades, we've got to have a record of things, but it's not really built around the needs of the students. And so much of that, if we ideally are teaching our classes well, and we're really able to build that kind of community, why shouldn't it continue on? And why shouldn't it even extend beyond the class, which if they if the students were able to really have the experience using a tool like Reddit, no doubt they could then find other communities that really resonated with them as well. Yeah. And that's um, one of the great things about just the way the web is now that you can augment your LMS with all these really great supplementary resources that are out there and you can kind of cobble together and pick and choose what really does add that value that you, that you're looking for. With a faculty member, are they just within the learning management system linking out to the subreddit or is it embedded in any way in the LMS? No, it's completely standalone. And I think it's just important to point out that his choice of that tool is just based on his own experience and preference and that it could have just as easily been, you know, a Facebook group or whatever else that's going to allow students to, you know, be on more familiar ground. 
So this next one you want to share a little bit about is VoiceThread. Yes. So VoiceThread is, it's so hard to describe <laughs> because it's so, <laughs> it's so simple that it can be used in a wide array of different ways. But essentially what it allows you to do is to start with some form of media. And that could really be anything from an image to a piece of text to a picture that you snap with your device's camera to a video that you create or to a video that you source. And then it allows whoever is involved in that conversation, and that can be teachers and students, to have a multi-mode conversation that centralizes around that piece of media as a starting point. So those comments can be video cam based or they can be text based. What it really allows is much more freedom of expression to kind of continue that conversation that gets started with some central piece of media. So we've seen that used just as teacher to student communication. So a teacher might just post a video to a voice thread kind of welcoming like, um, excuse me, so like a good example would be a teacher did a syllabus orientation overview using voice thread. So she started by uploading a PDF of her syllabus and then went over that in video form. Mm. Um, we've also seen it used as an alternative to your more traditional text-based forums. And we've seen it used to have students submit their written work to it and then the teacher will give more personalized and authentic voice feedback directly to the student using VoiceThread. What you said is really powerful because it is hard to explain. And I feel like I lack imagination when it comes to using VoiceThread because <laughs> I haven't used it before. And those examples you just gave are fabulous. I would have never have thought of, oh, I could put my syllabus up there and explain it. Can you talk a little bit more about as a student than what I would see I'm if I I'm assuming it's a multi-page PDF that that I would see. Yeah, it can be. So it, it kind of treats any document that you upload as a slide, and every voice thread can be a multi-slide digital artifact. So you can start with maybe a PDF that's two pages and upload it, and there'll be a slide for each page. But then you can continue adding slides on top of that if you want. And each one of those slides can have multiple comments, and you can allow replies on it as well. So the thread part really comes into play when there's a conversation that's really going back and forth that's usually uh, related to the piece of media, but of course can get off topic as well. <laughs> and in the case of the student, if I'm hearing you talk about your syllabus for your class, then I might have a question about how does this get graded or, or, or some aspect of the, the class structure. And then I could post a video of myself asking that question, or I could put some text up there. And then exactly would right. you get notified that someone's done that? Yeah. So it will send you a notification of a comment on your voice thread. And then optionally, you can reach out to that student either you know through email or you can make a private reply right in voice thread. Or if it's something that's going to be pertinent for all of the students in the course, you can make a public reply to it right there. Yeah. And you can see how... Um easy and flexible this is for students. So like, like you said, if you have a question about the syllabus, all you have to do is press the little microphone icon and say, you know what, I'm, I'm not clear about this section. Can you please explain it? Boom, you're done. Yep. And then, you know, the faculty member will reply to you again, could be a, another voice or video or text reply or whatever it is for everybody else to see it if, if uh, it's unclear to the whole class. And just to point out, as you're recording, you're able to annotate on top of whatever you have on the screen as well. So that really can make things just crystal clear when you're able to both <laughs> speak about it even draw a little circle or an arrow straight to it. So it's really an opportunity, I think, to clear up some of the confusion that just abounds when you're trying to communicate asynchronously online. 
One of the things that you said that it can do is that you could post a video up there. Do you have any examples of what kind of a video someone might put up there and then how students might comment on top of a video? That's what, that's the part two. You talked about slides and that really made a lot of sense to me, but now I'm trying to conceptualize how video might work in a usable case. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think often the, the video would just be something that could be brought in from YouTube. I mean, to be honest, I haven't really seen our faculty doing this, but I have tested it out myself. So you can embed a YouTube video and then record your own commentary over it. Mm. And as you're recording your commentary, I mean, that could be a webcam or just audio, you can pause the video and then use those annotation tools on top of it. Or you can even use the annotation tools as it's still playing along. So if you wanted to really look at a video in depth and break it down, it would be a great way to capture that. Yeah, great for film history classes or, mm -hmm. you know, chemistry lab experiments or whatever, you know, you really need to look at as class together a video, you know. I've taught a sales and sales management class before and we do a lot of role plays and there's different types of questions that they might ask. And so I could see us even on top of the video, what kind of question was just asked and then ask other people and the students to put comments up there of what kind of question they think it was. And, oh, I could totally yeah. see it. Now I'm starting to see the picture. One of the other tools that I wanted to just quickly mention because it's under the same thread of voice thread is one <laughs> called Flipgrid. And Ben, I know you and I corresponded a little bit on Twitter about this. I was introduced to Flipgrid by Michelle Pekansky Brock. And Michelle, I apologize if that's not how you pronounce your name, but that's, <laughs> I'm giving it a go. <laughs> um, she's the author of Humanizing Online Learning and among many other wonderful work that she's doing. And she invited me to participate as in, in a conversation she was having using Flipgrid around what is enjoyable about teaching online classes. And it was really a very enjoyable experience just to get to be exposed to all these people I wasn't familiar with. And the videos are kept to a limit. We had a limit of, I believe, two minutes or less. It could have been 90 seconds or less. But I do like when tools limit it like that, because when you're sitting there online, two minutes is actually could be an agonizingly long time, depending on yeah. <laughs> what's happening yeah, on screen. Sure. And especially if you're trying to have a conversation, you sort of want to give people the idea of a conversation, not a monologue. And so that was really helpful. And uh, there were just all these creative ways. Uh, there was one woman who was on the thread who was doing something active, like she had a helmet on or some kind of, it's just, it's a, I did it a while ago, but it's just funny that people can be anywhere in the world and participate with these kinds of tools on their mobile devices. And it's fun to sort of catch people in action that way. Definitely. Yeah. I just got a little bit of exposure to Flipgrid as part of a class that I was taking and I didn't get to participate in one, but I, I definitely think it's going to be a contender for that kind of voice thread type of tool. And the one impression that I took away because it actually has, it creates like a grid of people's video kind of portraits as they're talking. It reminded me of the Brady Bunch. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's a great description. And when you and I were corresponding, I was going to look and the pricing is approximately the same. So I probably, you know, I'm always watching what I subscribe to and trying not to get too carried away with those expenses. And I think I'd pick one or the other, whatever is the best use case, but they're really pretty reasonable as far as paying an annual subscription and then being able to use it in our teaching. So I'm I'm probably going to dive into one or the other. And of course, we always, when we're thinking about these tools, want to say, what is it we're trying to accomplish? And I think that will help me then decide which of this, these two I should embark on this fall. Well, the next topic is very near and dear to my heart. I do it quite a bit. And 
I'm excited to hear you share a little bit about how your faculty are using screencasting. Yeah, so I think screencasting is just one of those fundamental ed tech methodologies at this point, and it can be in really any type of classroom or any subject um, as a useful way to do flipping of the classroom and allow more time in class, or if you're in an online class, just to add so much more presence um, from the instructor into the course. So this is something that we, because we don't really have a lot of online uh, courses at UP, it's almost all face-to-face. This is something we've really seen take off in the last few years. And I mostly attribute it to a new tool that we got brought on called Kaltura Capture Space. If you're not familiar with Kaltura, they're kind of like a video platform vendor. So it almost creates like a private version of YouTube for your institution. Um, And we're lucky enough to have that at UP. But they introduced this Capture Space tool, which just makes it so easy to get started screencasting. It really simplifies the uh, production workflow so that rather than having to worry about like different resolutions and export into different video Kodak formats and things like that, you hit a button to record, you hit a button to stop. If you need to do any lightweight editing, you can trim the beginning and the end off, and then you just hit a button to upload, and it goes to your account that you're able to just sign in with your institution credentials. So I think that really eliminated a lot of barriers for people and got them started with the screencasting kind of mojo. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Definitely. It's just a great... Yeah, this is a great jumping off point. So, I mean, there's really no end to the ways that screencasting can be used. Obviously, everything from full-on video lectures to, you know, short tutorials to just check-ins. Really just a great, great technology for teaching. Right. And we've got some real heavy usage in the School of Nursing. I mean, a lot of them really flip a lot of their curriculum so that students can review it at any point in time. We have some of our faculty recording, you know, in-class lectures and annotating on top of those. And again, students can review that at any time. It's a, you know, a a piece of media that stays with them as long as they need it. School of Engineering, we've seen them go over problem sets and, you know, again, produce flip media for their students so that when they come to class, they've already got a basis and an understanding of what the topic is going to be on. And they can use that class time, of course, for, for different purposes. School of Education is doing things. So we're really seeing a broad usage across uh, many disciplines. One of the things that has just surprised me about screencasting, it kind of used to be, at least my impression, I used to work in the computer training industry. And so we're talking many moons ago here, more than 20 years ago, where where you would just, you know, try to teach somebody Microsoft Word so you would record, here's the steps that you take in order to do this. And but But now there's such a wider range of how we might use screencasting. When someone just has a quick question for me, I'll just go record you know, 30 seconds of showing them how to do it versus how long it would take me to type out those instructions. And also then on their end of things, how long it would take them to read and then try to reproduce that into what visual interface they're trying to work with. I mean, how much easier is it just to watch it and then replicate those steps? And so I use one called tapes, and this is unfortunately only on the Mac, but tapes is literally click, record, drag what part of my screen I want to record. And as soon as I'm done recording and press stop, it's on the clipboard ready for me to paste into an email. I don't have to worry about where it's going to go because it's on their servers. Now that's not ideal if I want to reuse something in a class. I don't want it living on someone else's server. 
I want it living on inside my file. So if I want to modify <laughs> it later on or use it in another class, you know, it's that much easier to do. So one other go-to tool that I'll just mention real quick before we go on to your next choice is called Snagit. And Snagit's been around mm-hmm. for a long time, a super oh, we long We love time. Snagit here. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. I, it blows me away because Snagit used to not really be in the world of screencasting. They have a, <laughs> a product that's higher up called Camtasia that is, mm-hmm. you know, more designed for screencasting. But if you just have some quick needs, I mean, Snagit used to just be take a picture of something on your screen, put an arrow you're done. But now you can do video, just what's on your screen, but also click back and forth so they can see your face on your webcam. You might want to make a really important point and then click back so that they're back looking at your screen. I mean, it's it's really come a long way. And then there's a lot of different ways where you can set it up that I automatically want you to save it to Google Drive or automatically want you to save it to whatever cloud storage preference you have and set those up in advance. And then make it that much speedier to produce these kinds of things. And, and anything we can do to speed them up. You talked about Kaltura Capture Space really speeding up that process for you. That's an important choice. And then screencasting is just, I mean, it's wonderful. It's yeah. absolutely wonderful. I'm glad you brought up that kind of range of examples because I think that's so true about something like Snagit where you could even just grab a quick screenshot and draw a quick red arrow to it and just say, you know, for the love of God, just click here. <laughs> uh, I don't, I can't explain it any more clearly than this. Um, but then, you know, all the way up to something like Camtasia, and we have a couple of our professors in the business department who are a little bit more gregarious, and they'll they'll make um, some more involved videos of themselves, just kind of hanging out in their office, talking about whatever theory they need to talk about that day, and pulling out the ukulele. <laughs> manipulating their video so that it's coming in and out of different, like he's bringing newspaper clippings on top of the screen. And so if you want to get more advanced and put a little bit of production into it, you can make some really fun and really effective uh, learning materials that way too. Right. But as you pointed out with Snagit, which is just a really nice, easy to use, always at the ready tool, that just works great for those little 30 to 50 second one-offs. You know, I need to get this out and show somebody something and here I can, you know, explain it with just by talking and showing a picture and sending it out, you know, that that's, that's great. And that really, that will be an entry way point for a lot of people too, to get them started. So this next one is another great tool to experiment with in our teaching. It's called Padlet. What can you tell us about that? So what Padlet it's, it's actually kind of similar to like a Pinterest, basically lets you set up a board, but it also allows you to really easily create a collaboration link and then just post that to you know, a learning management site or to just send it out through email. And then anyone that has that link can go out and find images, videos, you know, podcasts, whatever, and they can put those on the board with you. So that allowed her to, I think, have the students take like brief um, amounts of time to go do some research and then share that what they found with the class in a collaborative way. I've used Padlet in similar ways too. And it's, I mean, it's just a virtual bulletin board pictures, text, video, and it treats those things really well. You can set up your boards to be in grid format or in hodgepodge format like you would expect a bulletin board to be a lot of different ways. And it's also really mobile friendly too. So that's when you're in a group of people and you want to just say, pull out whatever device you have with you. If they've got a mobile phone, great. If they've got a tablet, great. Computer, great. And uh, it's just a great way of 
collaborating and discovering. And people really seem to get energized whenever I've used it because they just love both the experience of sharing, but also then seeing what the other people are sharing as it comes on the board. Yeah, I think it has a really good ratio of early effort or learning curve to reward. So when you're able to go out and find something really cool and then it's so easy to put it on the board and then boom, you see it projected and on the screen for the whole class to look at. I think that's a really energizing feeling. Do you have any guidance for faculty who want to use this as in to what extent should we be separating out? Oh, now we're going and trying to look for stuff. And then Mm -hmm. now we're trying to go look what other people found and discover what's on the board. Do do you separate those things in some sort of a formal way? Or is it just more let people share what they want to and go explore (laughs) what's up there as they might? Yeah, I sort of feel like people use it in the way that they used to use a wiki. You know, it's like, here's our collaborative space. We're all going to contribute to it. We're going to keep updating it. Or as, as with the project moves forward, we can add and pull things in and curate other resources. So I kind of feel like in a lot of people's minds, it's, it's performing that function still. Yeah, when I, w- when I used it in class, they there were a couple of videos that students had found that I hadn't seen at all. And talk about, I, I didn't do it for this purpose. <laughs> But it sure was a goldmine then the next time I taught the class to pull up those padlets and go, oh, this two minutes was priceless on this topic. (laughs) And I don't I don't know that I could have found as good of stuff as they found. So it was also helpful for me just in terms of archiving artifacts from a given class and being able to revisit them again. Yeah. Yeah, it can be a crowdsourcing tool for sure. I mean, if you think of something like Pinterest, people might use that to plan, you know, say a wedding and get not just their own ideas, but ideas from thousands of other people that are thinking about the same thing. And it can really be used in the classroom to, you know, instead of plan a wedding, you're constructing an understanding around a certain subject or topic. Well, this next one is brand new to me. I think I can pronounce it, but that's as far as I can get. So <laughs> tell us <laughs> tell us about Genius. Yeah, Genius is a bit of a wild card here. So when we were kind of conceptualizing what we were going to talk about, we kind of broke the other tools down into some more well-known sort of archetypes like Padlet's kind of like a curation app and so Genius kind of most closely I think falls into the social bookmarking sort of category mm-hmm. but what it started out as is, is a place where uh, the lyrics to songs and music could be posted mm-hmm. and then really broken down and analyzed in depth and annotations and comments can be added to actually each line of a song and and the lyrics could be looked at. So this was actually something that one of the professors, or the professor that was using Reddit um, also used. And he was having his students listen to an album, a hip-hop album by Kendrick Lamar. And he was having them draw parallels between some of the biblical texts that they were looking at, and then Kendrick Lamar's kind of own life and different struggles and observations. So he was actually having them use it mostly as a resource, but if you go onto Genius and look at a song, you'll see some really incredibly in-depth annotation and analysis of some of these lyrics. And so basically you highlight a line of the song and then on the sidebar will pop up all of this information about it. Um, And that could be everything from text to like, I saw someone had posted a SoundCloud interview with Kendrick Lamar where he was talking about what he was feeling and why he wrote the lyrics that way. And then those can then be kind of similar to Reddit upvoted. So the most relevant content kind of floats to the top. So to him, it was just a way to have the students get really much more closer to the cultural kind of artifacts that they were using to relate to their learning. 
Right. And there were pictures posted of uh, his neighborhood where he grew up and streets nearby that he's referencing in his song lyrics. And, you know, so they could really get visuals on what these places look like and where, where they were, the settings. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. I was thinking about a really brilliant storyteller who has since retired at our institution, but who used to build giant biblical maps in the classroom building, bringing all these giant blankets and pillows. So it wasn't just a flat map. It was a topographical map in the classroom. Nice. They have to move all the yeah. tables and everything. It was just the whole event, but it, it really created a memory for them. And yet I, I've never been in his class, so I'm certainly, I, I know he was very highly regarded, but I'm thinking this is yet another way instead of just a memory about an old text or quote unquote old places that maybe I don't have any association with, but connecting with something I might have an association with and people and music and things I might have an association with and then help me draw me in to make those connections then with these more historical texts. I just love that idea of, of helping our students find their little footholds for, for where they might connect with this. We've talked about on the show before hypothesis, which is another social annotation yeah. tool. And mm -hmm. I know a little bit about that history. In fact, surprise, spoiler alert, I'll more than likely have one of the founders or, or the people running the show, their hypothesis on the show in the future, because I think they'd have a lot to contribute to the conversation as well. But I'm just intrigued, though, by genius in terms of its roots being in music. I, I'm, I'm resisting the temptation right now sitting on my hands so that I don't <laughs> take my mouse and go over there and start to look at what other musicians because I'm really into music and, and what a fun place to go and explore. And oh, I just love that bringing together people that have an appreciation for an artist and then and finding out more about the lyrics and, and what they really mean or people's interpretation of them. It sounds amazing. Well, Maria, before we go on to the recommendation segment, I just wanted to take a pause and ask you if there's anything from an instructional design standpoint or from how our students might experience some of these tools that are important to mention before we go on to the next part. I think we've been hitting a lot of the key points, you know, in that that these tools are flexible for faculty. The barriers to using them are low. You know, they don't take a lot of training. The endlessly creative ways that you can use them. I mean, I love being able to to put these ideas out there because, you know, people will hear these and, and say, oh, you know what, I can do that too in my class. Or, gee, I never thought about using it that way. You know, that'll work for my students or whatever. I feel like people will try these things because, you know, they're low stakes, they're fun. Again, we've got free options in most cases for everything, and there's really no reason not to give it a try. You might get, in all cases that we've mentioned today, we've heard feedback from students via the faculty, and we've gotten, you know, many positive comments about um, the way that these tools are impacting students. You know, they're they're creating that community. They're creating a more intimate space a lot of times for collaboration and sharing, and they really are having an impact there's an article that's been floating around social media quite a bit in, in recent days, and that is about a study that they did on anthropology professors and why they didn't adopt more, quote unquote, proven teaching practices. And a lot of why they didn't experiment with these more research-based teaching approaches were because they were afraid of failing. I've been having lots of conversations about this, both on social media and then also on the phone and in person, but just this idea of all of us have that possibility to hold ourselves back because we're afraid of failing. 
I mean, anthropologists, it's not, they're not alone in this, <laughs> in this fear <laughs> right. of failure that holds them back from some of these things that'll work. So I know a lot of times with technology, I hear that where people go, oh, I'm just not good with technology. I don't want to try it. I don't want to look stupid in front of my students, all of that. Where, where do you think is a good place to start? I mean, do we have to start with a tool that's a little bit more forgiving or do we just have to kind of get our mindset that, yeah, no, everything's not going to work the way we think it's going to. Yeah. I think there's something to, to both of those kind of mindsets. And really I think something to keep in mind is that no one understands all of technology and can (laughs) keep up with all of it. I mean, this is my full-time job and I learn new things every day. And I think another thing for faculty is just don't try to go it alone, you know, Lean on those relationships that you have at your institution. There's probably someone whose job it is to help you with technology and to talk about it with you. And if those aren't fruitful relationships, there's people online that you can reach out to. Like Mm -hmm. you can listen to Bonnie's podcast, which is excellent. You can join the Slack community associated with the podcast. So I just think, you know, don't try to go it alone because there's just such a great community out there that wants to help and wants to kind of push people to find new ways to teach. And let me just add that in the case of the theology professor that we were talking about who used Padlet, what's often driving these really innovative, unique uses of technology is a desire to connect with students, to make your class more engaging, to provide students with a with a more interactive experience that that is that resonates with them. And this faculty again started out with no technical knowledge, you know, no basis for even wanting to do these these projects, but she just wanted to connect with her students. And these yeah. were the tools that enabled her to do it. And I just I just to see her succeed and and pull all these pro you know these projects off has just been amazing. And that's what it takes that, you know, that desire to to connect with your students. Absolutely. She teaches a theology course uh, called Suffering and Death. <laughs> and she would joke well, it's time for my daily bout of suffering. She was trying to kind of work through some of the bugs and things like that. (laughs) But we just developed this great relationship working on this together. And it was just so rewarding to see not only what she was able to get out of it, but what her students were able to get out of it as well. Yeah. This is the point in the show where all three of us get to give our recommendations, things that have been on our minds and have grabbed our attention in recent weeks. And for me, it is a Netflix original series called Master of None. And this is a show created by Aziz Ansari and Alan Yang. And it tells the story of the personal and professional life of Dev, who is played by Aziz Ansari, a 30-year-old actor in New York. And it's one of those that is just such a fun look at life. There's a lot of themes around diversity. Aziz is of um, Indian descent. And so there's a sort of some tension sometimes between his parents who are Indian and then women that he wants to date and whether or not they're approved by his family. And there's a lot of cultural differences that come up throughout the various characters. There's professional things that come up about doing what you really love. There's lots of ethical questions. There's travel. There's, I mean, it's just a a great, great show. And for those of you that have never seen any episodes of Master of None, there are two seasons that you will dive through in about two and a half seconds. So (laughs) we just have to hope that there's a season three coming because I was so sad when it got over because it's like, what's going to replace that? Just, it's, you know, it's light (laughs) enough. Every episode made me laugh, but it also made me think. And his approach Mm -hmm. to educating us just about cultural differences was not one of shaming or guilt. It was um, done most frequently through humor 
and wit and insight. And I just I thought it was I thought it was great. It's really well written. The acting is not overdone. It's very subtle and um, just a really great show. So I'm going to recommend, especially for people who are in what we sometimes call summer, you know, it's just a kind of a fun break, even if you're not literally, <laughs> I was asking Ben, so you doing anything fun this summer? Uh, well, <laughs> school. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, it's just a nice little fun way to take a break during your day. Master of none. And I'm going to kick it over to Maria, who I know has something for us as well. Well, I do now. I'm sure you've heard of Duolingo. And this has been around for quite a while, the language learning app. And I've, you know, had fits and starts with it. I've tried to learn Spanish and, you know, kind of go a little while and then just drop it. But I was recently just overcome with the fact that I'm the only one in my all Italian family who does not speak Italian. And I was just so embarrassed by this that I finally decided to make a commitment and learn Italian via Duolingo. Well, here's what I like about it. You know, you can set the daily challenge for yourself, you know, 15 minutes a day or whatever it is. You can, you know, specify that. I like that it reminds you every day that it's time to do your Duolingo. I like that the feedback you get is is you know, very present. You get the the sound cue when you get something right. You get a visual on the screen and it comes up, the little owl comes up and says, you know, great job or whatever it is. And in, in Italian, of course, it's telling you this. <laughs> and, you know, I just feel like, like they've done such a good job of, of just building in those cues and the incentives and the motivations. And when you finally make that commitment to learn, you actually can learn. And I was telling um, Ben right before the show that, I'm surprised that they took an approach to kind of immersing you in the language rather than a typical sort of language learning program where you where you'd learn how to conjugate a verb and here's, you know, all the different tenses and whatever. They just kind of throw you in there and start, you know, speaking and you're trying to figure out what what are they saying? And you, they give you, you know, a couple of um, choices and things to choose, but you you really do learn that way. And I wouldn't have thought necessarily that that was a great approach, but it is working. So I'm, I'm impressed with it. I'm using it and I'm learning. So I think it's, it's a win. One of our relatives subscribed to highlights magazines for our kids and many oh, I of love us. Highlights. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> do, do they still have Goofus and Gallant in there? I think so, but I'm not positive because I don't know the names <laughs> of all the characters. I'm going to have to now I have yeah. to look for that. But they have a little story every month that also has phrases in Spanish. And so I've been saying those to my daughter and trying to help her learn those. Although, let's just say, her, I'm not going to be recording her and playing those uh, clips on the, on the show anytime soon as a evidence of her mastery. But I thought like, oh, if I have a regret in life, it's that I never learned Spanish. And how there's something like this that's still present for us. We don't have to live with our regrets. We could dive right in. It looks great. You know, in that instance, I couldn't sit on my mouse finger. So <laughs> couldn't sit on my hands for that when I had to go check out the website because it's not one that I've explored before. It looks it looks fabulous. It's Spanish and French and German, Italian, Portuguese. Many languages. Yeah. yeah it just keeps going. Okay. Even off my screen. All right. <laughs> All right. Now we get to pass it over to Ben now. <laughs> yeah. Well, Bonnie, as you had hinted at, I'm a student right now, um, so I chose a book, and as you may know, for me at least as a student, I don't get to read for pleasure that often, because <laughs> my time gets pretty full of uh, assigned reading. So I have a book that was actually assigned for a course, but that I really kind of fell in love with, and it's called What Video Games Have to Teach Us About Learning and Literacy, and this was by Professor James Paul G., who's a psycholinguistics faculty. 
so his take was really interesting. It wasn't what I expected because, I mean, I am a fan of both learning and video games. But when I think of educational video games, I think of these kind of like mechanical, like math blasters kind of things where it's like, yeah, you're there's like pretty colors and flashy things going on. But really, it's just trying to get you to cram through a bunch of math studying. And that wasn't really the approach that he took in this book at all. Um, rather, he was kind of asking the question, you know, what is it about video games that draws people in and increases the challenge and they scale their skills with it and keep practicing and get really engaged with it and they become attached to characters and to stories? And what is it that we don't do in schools, but they do do in video games that gets people to just become super engaged with their learning in a deep way? So over the course of couple hundred pages, um, he actually goes into, I believe it's 36 principles of learning that he's identified mm. that are present in video games that don't really have anything to do with video games when the theory behind them is drawn out and discussed, but that you could think about applying to your teaching and to your relationship with students. So it's just a super fascinating book that I wasn't really expecting to get so much out of, but I really can't recommend it enough. It sounds fabulous. I'm going to have to, you guys both gave me something to check out for, <laughs> for the after this <laughs> show. So thank you so much. And I'm so glad to have had a chance to connect with both of you. And thanks for coming on the show and investing your time and, and sharing all these great resources with the community. Thanks for having yeah. us, Bonnie. Thanks so much, Bonnie. Thanks to Ben and Maria for coming on Teaching in Higher Ed and for sharing all these amazing tools with us, subreddits, voice thread, screencasting, Padlet, and Genius. So much we can go and follow up on. And thanks also for your recommendations. If anyone wants to go check out the show notes for this episode, make a comment, let us know other ways that you're using educational technology in your teaching. You can do that at teachinginhighered.com slash 167. And if you have never left a review for the show before, whatever service it is you use to listen, if it's Apple Podcasts or something else, when you leave a review, it not only touches my heart, <laughs> but it also helps other people be able to discover the show. So I'm just giving that regular pitch that I have to go out there and leave a review so we can get other people joining the teaching in higher ed community. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.